Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is Jay Cheel, a filmmaker who's about to premiere his new documentary, How to Build a Time Machine, at the Hot Dogs Festival in Toronto. It's a study of two men driven to recapture their past, one by building a scale replica of the vehicle from George Powell's 1960 movie, and another by unlocking the mysteries of the universe and, theoretically, inventing time travel. The movie makes its world premiere at the Isabel Bader Theatre next Monday, May 2nd. Jay picked Superman 3, Richard Lester's sillier, looser 1983 follow-up to the more cosmic-minded movies that brought Superman back to the big screen in 1978 and 1981. It's the one you probably don't think about that often. The one where Clark Kent goes back to Smallville and meets up with Lana Lang, thus missing out on the growing threat from an industrialist, his supercomputer-designing henchman, and, well, some weird kryptonite. It's not perfect, but it has a weird, charming energy and some genuinely sweet performances from Christopher Reeve and Annette O'Toole as Clark and Lana, and of course from Reeve as Superman, who remains the definitive version of that character on the screen. I'm sorry, we all know it's true. I'm really glad I got the chance to revisit it, and Jay had some very savvy insights into Lester's directorial strategies, among other things. This is someone else's movie. I'm not a huge comic book movie guy. Like, I, I like them. There are, one, there are some that I really enjoy. I enjoy Spider-Man 2 a lot. The Raimi um, film. Yeah, yeah. The, um, and I think I, I find it's usually when a director's voice finds its way through the noise, I guess, and you can see a stamp on there. And there's something interesting about that happening. Someone being able to kind of work their way through the weeds and, and still have a voice in a big comic book movie. And I guess this is kind of before comic book movies were what they are now. Oh, so absolutely. <clears throat> maybe it wasn't um, as difficult to, you know, have that, that voice present in there. But Richard Lester... I always feel like Superman 3 is beat up upon unfairly, and I always feel the, the need to defend it. And it's more of... And it's not like I have some great argument for it. A lot of it is just I really like it, and I grew up enjoying it, and it was my... I think it was my favorite of the, the four. Okay. Um, and it was before I knew who Richard Lester was. But now it's like... There's this... There's still this feeling of... I think it has people who have come to appreciate it but there's still this feeling of it, its biggest mistake was mixing comedy with superheroes or comedy with the comic book movie and and to me that's just so obvious like the choice of mixing comedy with like I'm a big fan of Batman from the you know the 1966 Batman right. and and I, I just feel like it's not something that should be off limits and now with Batman versus Superman having just come out yeah even more so, it's like, this is the Superman that I enjoyed, and it's so far away from what Batman versus Superman is. Oh, yeah. And the only thing that separates them is, is that choice of tone, I guess. And, and I, I think I can see, you know, I'm not saying Superman 3 is a, a great film or an amazing film. I can see why people wouldn't like it, but... I still think there's value in it, and and it's an interesting film in Richard Lester's filmography because it's 
it's a big blockbuster, but I still see his uh, style coming through and in, I think, unique ways. Like, it, it just, it's a very entertaining film. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say, I hadn't seen it, I would guess, since the first widescreen DVD release. Uh-huh. So that would be a good 15, 16 years, maybe. Um, and I remember I watched it again uh, just yesterday, properly, you know, mm-hmm. on the Blu-ray to see if it was what I remembered. It, and it, it isn't exactly. It's It's got... Uh, this time, I mean... I totally understand what you're saying about the lightness of it, and it is it is the funniest, loosest of the Superman movies, which yeah. is strange almost because some of the comic stuff is courtesy of Richard Pryor, who I like this time through. I realized I don't think he's actually playing a character; like he's right. just making noises for half of his performance, weird yeah. little grunts and yeah. and has hesitations and half half speech. And occasionally shouting things and running around really quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, that's what you got when you got Richard Pryor in the early 80s after yeah. stuff like The Toy and, and all these other weird choices he was making just to keep working. But the, I mean, there are these long stretches of movie where characters stand and stare at Richard Pryor. And that's not a Superman movie. That's mm-hmm. a Richard Pryor movie kind of invading the, the DNA of Superman as right. the Donner films had established, and of course Lester had stepped in to direct Superman 2 after the Sulkins blew up with uh, with Donner. Right. So <clears throat> this is the film where you get the sense that Richard Lester is making his Superman movie, and it's so completely different in terms of its flavor and, and timing. Um, just even the, the weird insistence that the human relationships aren't terribly important, uh, so they can be a little cartoony, mm-hmm. that actually works for the Silver Age Superman of you know, the, the old Kurt Swan days in the 60s when there were imps and aliens and magic-powered things happening all the time. It is it is very much the light Superman movie. And I think now it looks better in the rearview mirror because of Superman 4, which came immediately yeah. afterwards and just is abysmally bad. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, that one I, I do not feel the need to defend. No. Someone um, will, and we'll <clears throat> find him and mm-hmm. throw him into the sun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but So what was your first experience of Superman 3? How old were you when you saw it? Um... I don't, I don't know how exactly how old I would have been, but I remember very specifically on the uh, First Choice, the cable oh, yeah. channel, when they would have commercials for films that are screening that month or whatever. Right. And uh, they had commercials for Superman, and I just remember the shot of the missiles taking off and the shot of those two arms in the on the, the supercomputer coming towards Superman with the electricity shooting at him, and that's all I remember. I, I remember seeing the film eventually. I don't remember having any sort of like feelings towards it that it was a strange film or a, a weird entry in the series. Um, I remember enjoying it quite a bit, and I, it makes sense. It's very colorful. It's one thing I like about it is that. It taps into that, and, and I, this kind of applies to the film I just made, where it taps into that feeling of um, watching certain types of visuals that that make you that satisfy you. I guess like there's that video that was going around on YouTube of the most satisfying video in the world, where it's taffy being oh, spun right. and you know uh, tomatoes being sliced perfectly, and there's just certain images that are satisfying to watch. And I find with Richard Lester, 
in this film, he's managed to pull some images like that where it's just, he, he's not only setting up these sort of um, action sequences or these set pieces, but within, within them, there are things that as a kid, I remember watching and thinking psychologically, oh, I like seeing that, like the bubbling The acid, I knew you were going to mention the acid, yeah. And it's soothing the, in a really weird way, even though yeah, it's something it, destructive and awful. Yeah, and, and that choice, like just to, to choose to present it that way, it, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a choice in the way it spurts out and shoots red acid all over the computer and uh, the way that the wires kind of cross over Superman's face and the creepy robot when Vera turns into this robot right. robot woman. Jazz, um, jazz singer Annie Ross. It's yeah. such a weird way to, for her to pop up in, in cinema anyway. It's yeah, it, 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 the, the whole film is... It, yeah, the whole film is strange. I mean, Richard Pryor is obviously shoehorned in there for, you know, some sort of value. I, I guess he had, on Johnny, Johnny Carson, mentioned he was a Superman fan. So the Salkines reached out to him and, and said, be in our film... So I, I don't think that, although I like Richard Pryor in the film, it's clearly a, a, a sort of attempt at pulling in his audience, and yeah. which is fine. But um, it's almost for, a form of product placement. Yeah, like yeah. Just slotting him into this existing world. Right. And and when the film is talked about as being comedic, it's always in in reference to him that Richard Pryor's in it, and he's shoehorned in and they're trying to give him all these jokes and for me the, the the comedy that i enjoy comes from the direction and the choreography um the opening sequence is I, I remember i do remember seeing that when i was a kid and thinking that was odd because you were used to the star field and the big overly dramatic uh superman logo and the music and everything so it felt like it grounded the movie in a way but it's still obviously not realistic in any way, but it just feels like it's a smaller story and it's a more maybe personal story for Superman. You know, he's he's got this, there's this strange schizophrenic segment in there sure, where he's yeah. dealing with his own thing. But that opening sequence as a kid I loved, but now, you know, leading up to this, I rewatched a bunch of films and I, I rewatched a bunch of Lester films and Jacques Tati films. And of course, Jacques Tati is the the person you think of when you see that opening. Yeah, it's so just um, this elaborate geometric <clears throat> yeah. performance piece. Yeah, where and every human being and every vehicle and every object is part of this ballet. Mm -hmm. There's a cause and effect thing going on here where you get that. And for me, I'm not again. I'm not like a huge Superman guy. I didn't read the comics or anything. So, defining Superman for me might not be in line with Superman fans, but. The idea of <clears throat> humans as these lemmings that if you let them go, they'll get into all of this trouble. Yeah. And Superman's job is to continually monitor them and pick them up. Like there's in that montage at the beginning, there's the scene where, or the moment where the penguins get loose and then the guy's trying to pick them up. And that's Superman. Like it, it's yeah. these people walking around, falling in holes and you know, um, buckets fall. Yeah, and Superman has this job of having to micromanage human existence, and I think that sums that up very well. Yeah. Um, it's a great image too. Just and the and the fact that for most of that <clears throat> sequence, he's doing it as Clark. Yeah, like he's not able to reveal himself because that would just make things worse or complicate things further. Yeah, but to the point where Christopher Reeve can project this incredible 
just sort of sweetness of picking up a penguin, blowing out the yeah. fire on its head and putting it back and sending it back out. Yeah. That is, yeah, that's exactly, uh, it's a thesis statement for all of Superman. Well, you, you get I mean, this. Assuming that he's not running around killing people like right. these. <laughs> <laughs> you get this sense of, it's almost like um, uh, a parent-child relationship where you you want to course correct the, the child without them realizing you're, you're course correcting yeah. them. So maybe don't use the claw into the hammer today. Right. And it's so like the, the bowling scene when they're out bowling and mm-hmm. Clark is trying to help the kid bowl. And, um, you know, he's, he's telling Brad to back off when he's just being too, too much of a, you know, influence on how this kid bowls and lets him do it. But he still gives it that extra help yeah. without anyone knowing. So it's, it's like he's as Clark just, he, he's got that that sort of role where he's he's helping everyone but making sure he's doing it where it's it's not like they uh feel that they need the help like he's just kind of sneaking around and making sure everything stays in line and yeah. and that whole opening sequence i i think is cinematically great at representing that and it's entertaining and the only mistake is that it's the opening of superman 3 like that's the only thing I can hold, I can think that you could hold against it is it's unexpected, it seems out of place, and it sets the tone for the rest of the movie, and anyone who's not on board for that will hate the movie throughout. Uh, but then, you know, I, I would suggest try watching, you know, the bed sitting room, and try watching uh, even The Three Musketeers and all of Lester's earlier films and seeing, getting, settling into that comedic tone and his sensibilities or help or hard days night yeah i mean those are the ones that stand out to me and yeah in the just the management of huge i mean just the opening sequence of a hard day's night is a Mm -hmm. chase scene with no chase it's 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 avoidance rather than pursuit yeah and creates the music video i mean it acts it accidentally inspires an entire genre uh Mm -hmm. and then he continues playing with that throughout his entire career um what surprised me the most about watching it this time was just how technical it is because i remember it as the sloppier film but i think that's mostly just the way that scenes kind of jam up against each other the 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 villain plot barely exists and now of course 23 years later the idea that all you need to do is tell a computer what to do in basic and you can rule the world is Mm -hmm. a little naive i mean it's just it's an incredibly naive vision of of it right it is but it's like i'll take that over over explaining how that's working I'll yeah. take the naive sort of... I Wonder Woman, it in. I found your email. Yeah. <laughs> watch these videos now. We'll Just sit for sit five still. minutes and watch the you know these videos, but yeah. I'll take that sort of comic book naive yeah. early 80s. I just type in a code and it works somehow and then get that out of the way so we can get back to the fun stuff rather than watching you know this, this sort of tech exposition that I don't care about. Yeah, and that's absolutely valid, especially in the... In the context of the age where computers were just these weird things that beeped at you and you didn't really know what they were and and no one beyond the technical workers mm-hmm. had any interaction with them in 1983 computers were cool and fantasies yeah yeah um and the idea that that's how they would have responded in comic books as well just lines up perfectly i've built i've, I've sketched three gum wrappers in a cigarette case and this is a supercomputer that's yeah. more powerful than anything else i think they say it's a hundred times more powerful than any other computer in existence and that's still not as smart as our phones are now yeah. so it's all still really kind of gee whiz and and, and childlike mm-hmm. um and 
people, like just somebody else, like just a couple of days ago, someone was mentioning it maybe on another podcast somewhere, uh, that they were freaked out by the by what happens to Danny Ross at the end, but the, the robot eyes and the, that yeah. weird robot woman thing, which I saw when I was, I would have been like 14 in 1983. Mm-hmm. And I had seen the other films and I just, even then I knew, oh, they don't have an ending. Like this is just, you know, make the, yeah. make the computer a person so he can punch something. Yeah, yeah. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. But it's also functioning on a primal level that freaks children out, mm-hmm. which means it's succeeding as a Superman movie for the time. Even like the idea that he's having sex and, and running yeah. around being a dick, that's not Superman. And it is now, which mm-hmm. is so weird that the the bad Superman of Superman 3 prefigures the Henry Cavill version of the character right. who just takes what he wants, kills when he needs to, and doesn't actually worry so much about the morality because yeah. he is a Randy and super figure above morality. Thanks, X Snyder. But... Um, <laughs> What you get is, in this, you get a clear sense of moral division, right and wrong. And yeah, he is, he's not quite as godlike as he will become. I think that mostly started in the, the DC 90s when they resurrected him as a, essentially as a, as a remote god. Mm-hmm. So here we still have the innocence and the small-scale moralism that yeah. defines Reeve. I yeah. mean, Reeve Superman is the guy who will catch you. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the guy who will make sure... Although he kind of tortures Lois in Superman 2. In Superman 3, he's really just not doing any of that. He's yeah. being a good person. He wants things that he can't have. Um, the, the weird, I mean, What's weird about 3 for me is that it's sort of going over the same essential conflicts as 2, which is that Superman longs to be mortal so he can be with Lois Lane. And once again, he's having that duality the duel with himself over lana kind of sort of but it never progresses beyond call me sometime there's a really weird innocence as though he's that's how he's going to present himself to the world as clark kent Mm -hmm. but because it's christopher reeve he's still having so much fun with it like it's a playful clark yeah um the idea that he can run off and and not stand up to bullies because he was busy getting the dog out of a culvert. Yeah. And and Superman had to go and save the kid with a head injury. But it also means that he had to move the dog separately because Mm -hmm. the dog was with the kid. It's little tiny things that aren't shown but are completely demonstrated in in Reeves' performance. Yeah, and it reminds me of the only thing I like in Superman 4 is the double date, the Mm. the Clark and Superman double date, where it's almost like a screwball comedy where he has to maintain both dates. Yeah. Um... It just yeah, that idea of of uh, again, it gets back to Clark being the one who's Clark's job is to make sure that people don't realize in what ways they're being helped or maneuvered or manipulated by Superman, so that you know he, you can get to that end point where everybody's safe and sound without sometimes even knowing what happened. I guess, but um, but yeah, the the the. I, I actually love the whole idea of him returning to Smallville and the idea of, you know, Clark, I think he says um, he he wants to do a piece about uh, this, you know, metropol- this socialite now from Metro- Metropolis trying to reconnect with his roots in the small town. And um, meanwhile, Richard Pryor's character, Gus, is doing the opposite. He's mm-hmm. trying to become rich and... and and uh, powerful, so there's a nice sort of, I guess, dynamic there where they're they're both on these paths to connect with the opposite class or something, and yeah. and watching how they go about that is fun. But yeah, it's a weirdly aspirational narrative for both of them. Yeah, and, and the way that um, 
when they had the high school reunion and, and this idea of, you know, high school reunion being classic Americana and, and the way it's set up, it's set in the sixties and you hear roll over Beethoven yeah. by the Beatles, because which only Richard, obviously can Richard Lester can. Yeah. And um, all the other songs on the Blu-ray at least seem to have been changed. Uh, oh really? There's this weird artificial kind of, you know, the fake music that plays in the thing instead of superstitious in the old video mm-hmm, version. Mm-hmm. That it sounds a lot like that. It sounds like fake library music. Yeah. Uh, and there's a credit songs by Giorgio Moroder, but I'm pretty sure I didn't hear any in the in the version I saw last night. But Rollover Beethoven is still there. Yeah, and uh, Earth Angel That's is right, there. Yeah. Um, but either way, the the dynamic between Clark and Lana. I love the way that the, their conversations never align. They're always stepping over each other's words and misinterpreting what they're saying. And there's this like playfulness amongst them. And classic Richard Lester, I think, is um, at the top when Lana brings the plates to the DJ and is about to put the salad on the record yeah. and stuff like that. It, it they're little pieces of direction that I think those are the comedic moments that I like in the film and they're a little goofy and I think Christopher Reeve said that Lester was always looking for gags to do on the set and and put into the film and I mean I love visual gags I I love it's like just for laughs the movie (laughs) um it's just whether you know I guess if people think Superman is gag worthy (laughs) I I think he is and uh so all of that stuff, that playfulness, I enjoy. But it, it, it it's also the fact that, for me, a lot of the, the modern-day superhero films, I just... Plot kills me. If there's too much, like, Red Matter or, you know, the, the Transformers films and where we're just getting bogged down and aligning all of these details right. for a plot purpose and there's no time... And it, you've got a two-and-a-half-hour runtime and we've hardly spent any time with the characters. And so... I think with Superman 3, I, I'm in favor of setting aside some of the, the details of the the villain's uh, plan and, and uh, you know, the, the more plot-driven stuff, like we said, jumping ahead to Gus Gorman just knows how to build a supercomputer. We'll accept that because we just want to get to the supercomputer and, and see what cool stuff it does. And cert- certain movies, that would just... I wouldn't let that slide, but tonally it just makes sense within this film for some reason. And I don't know if it's just that I'm bringing in certain expectations from Richard Lester's previous films and it becomes a case of, you know, oh, you hate Superman 3? Well, watch these other films and you'll like it. It still doesn't mean Superman 3 is a success if it can't, I guess, exist on its own. But I do feel like that sort of uh, context helps it quite a bit. If you understand that the person who made it actually has this rich filmography that informs the language of Superman 3 right. and that it's a, an unusual I guess a, a, it's an unusual choice for a film like that but for me it seems to make sense with Superman. Just the the fact that Richard Lester is obsessed with these sort of icons and you know Superman is is pretty on par with the Beatles I sure, think in yeah. terms of iconography and, and people's response to Superman and uh, you see hints of that throughout the film the whole thing of Superman in the photo booth doing the costume change and handing off the picture to the kid and 
um, even the idea of these loose visual connections of telephone booths. And I think of the Beatles in a telephone booth with, um, you know, a, a mask on. Yeah. yeah. And hard day's night. Right. Uh, so there, there's all of these, it, it makes sense. It might be on a, a weirdly shallow level, but it, there's, it just makes sense that Richard Lester handles the Beatles films and Superman's films as these two major icons. And, uh, his sensibilities for me just work perfectly. Yeah. I, I thought about <clears throat> Lester. I mean, you can sort of feel Lester's hand in the quieter moments. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, the big action sequences, even in Donner's original Superman, there's a kind of a final destination inevitability about the way things happen. The, yeah. the individual pieces that set up the helicopter dangling in, yeah. in the, the midpoint of the first film. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredible measured chaos you know, oh, this nut is loose, and this thing's going to happen, and this cup of coffee might fall. Right. But in Superman three, I mean, as you say, he focuses on the on the characters in Smallville simply by being there with them. Mm-hmm. But I had never realized until last night that that shot of Clark and Lana breaking down the party the next day is a wonder. Like it's a yeah. single take, yeah. and it's incredibly complicated. It, mm-hmm. Just, I mean, it goes on for maybe five minutes and it's dialogue and someone's on a ladder and people get down and there are props to be dealt with, Mm -hmm. but it's also moving the story forward for the two characters and it's doing so at a relaxed pace that instantly removes it from anything else in any Superman movie Mm -hmm. Uh, because there's no portent. You know, previously all the Krypton stuff is so heavy and the dialogue is so elevated and here it really is just two people talking about maybe going from the small town to the big city and maybe tentatively exploring the possibility of maybe having a relation mm-hmm. just it's also sublimated yeah but it's so calm that we're allowed to let it we're allowed to breathe it we're allowed right. to watch it happen with them and it makes Annette Tool's performance just really way more important to the film than it might mm-hmm. have otherwise been Lana Lang becomes a person like she's a mother she's a she's a an adult she's got regrets mm-hmm. she talks about everything that's gone on in her life and you really do feel like this character who we glimpsed in the first movie um, is actually a person now. Like, she went on and had a life while Superman was being Superman. Right. Yeah, I I think that whole sequence is overlooked whenever people talk about Superman 3 because they're focused so much on Richard Pryor that the Smallville stuff is great. Um, It's just... You're right in that it, it quiets down for a moment and you get... I think you get, um, in the first Superman film, and I guess in part two, you get some time between Clark and Lois, but there's always that, in two especially, the undercurrent is, okay, Superman's lost his powers, when is he going to get them back? And that's all you're thinking about. Yeah, you're um, not going to end the film on a cliffhanger where he's still Clark Kent, of course. Right, and so the relationship is, is only able to kind of breathe a little bit because there's that suspense underneath third... With this, it's just, we're going to spend some time in Smallville. We're going to see where Clark grew up and the relationships he had. And, you know, his relationship with Brad, I think, is interesting as well. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, basic, but interesting. Yeah. Um, and that actor had been, like, he was the sort of American douchebag to go to that, yeah. that year. He's in yeah. Superman 3 and in Never Say Never Again as well, right. with the heroin-addicted um, dupe. Yeah, and, and in he's in cases, Willow as well. That's right, a couple yeah. years later. Yeah, um, five years later? Yeah. But he was this strange go-to guy who mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have existed outside of big genre pictures, mm-hmm. which I find really interesting. As soon as I saw him in this one, it's like, oh, it's 
that guy. Patachi, I think his character's name was. Yeah. Uh, but once again, he's being used as a, just an, a complete buffoon. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was his thing. Mm-hmm. But it's so weird that he only surfaces in these movies. And yeah. maybe that's how kids recognize him, how you know, children bond with the character. Yeah. It, I mean, it's very efficient casting because you you just put him in that role and you immediately understand who he is and you don't have to spend any additional time setting that up so well i mean he predates biff tannen by two years but it's the same archetype it's the the, the corn-fed idiot who peaked in high school right um but yeah i mean i mean even i i just lester's direction it at the uh the reunion i i love how when Clark and Lana first see each other and then it cuts to the images of the posters that are hanging up of their high school photos and there's just a great sense of nostalgia there that it might not carry throughout the film like we lose that pretty quickly but for that sequence it it feels grounded I, I think Lester said he wanted to make a film that felt more real I don't know that it's a success in that regard but there are moments that I think feel the most real out of the the Superman films for me, uh, and it would be those moments with with Lana. Even though their dialogue is very written and very playful, but it it's a great relationship. And and uh, I I haven't seen any of the Smallville TV show or yeah, I never really got into so it. So I don't know what you know where things go in terms of that relationship or how it's been dealt with in other ways in other shows. But I I think it's great. Um, and anything. Again, for this film, I'm happy to just kind of, you know, have these contained moments, and then we we get back to some of the playful superhero stuff, and it's it doesn't feel the need to. Uh, it it kind of knows what its job is, I guess. Richard Lester is is kind of just uh, being efficient with the storytelling and with his visuals, and isn't trying to aim for the stars, but also is doing a great job at just setting up these fun action sequences and and I, I do think some of the action sequences are playful as well um, like the the fire at the, the chemical plant yeah and the idea of him taking the big tube and bending it down and everyone sliding down just stuff like that is is fun to watch I mean it's not I don't know it's very simple and some but it's almost like almost Jackie Chan-esque like just watching these people slide down those tubes I remember as a kid kid thinking oh that looks fun I would love to be saved from a chemical fire and slide down a tube yeah I mean the the possibility of obliterating somehow the eastern seaboard even though they're on their way to Kansas um, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it's a Mm -hmm. Superman movie but but the the problem yeah the problem with modern Superman movies and the execution in Man of Steel and Batman v Superman DDS or LLP or whatever it is um (laughs) I've been calling it Death of Joy just because I'm a dick. Mm. <laughs> but um, the problem with Superman movies now is that the, the concept of Superman as a hero is so um, exaggerated now in that he is a god on Earth. Mm-hmm. He is indestructible. So it always has to be either a Kryptonian or himself. Those are the only things that can harm him. And so what you get is if he shows up, the fight seems really over. Like, there's yeah. no... The emergency is simply, well, if the, if the boat's on fire, I'm going to pick up the boat and move it somewhere where it's not on fire, or I'll blow mm-hmm. it out, and it's over in a second. Yeah. What 
the earlier Superman movies did was they created, yeah, earthly complications that he has to deal with, but it also gives them inventive solutions. Like, Superman is allowed to be smart yeah. and resourceful, and by pulling up a giant duct and turning it into a slide, yeah, he diffuses the situation, but it also shows thought mm-hmm. and caution, and yeah, I can't just whip people off the side of this building and hope they land on the airbag. There, there's, right. a, there's a process that's going through, um, even in... Um, uh, what was it in Superman Returns? The the wonderful wonderful sequence, and I I go to the mattresses for Superman Returns. I think that mm-hmm. it's a, a lovely film that was completely misunderstood uh, and rejected because of the the grim dark, the creeping grim dark of the yeah. X Men movies and everything else. Um, but there's a moment where Superman has to fly through Metropolis as glass is shattering and there's a giant earthquake or something, mm-hmm. and he flips over on his back and uses his heat vision to remove the glass, to boil it away before it can fall on people. That's what Superman does. Superman solves problems and saves people. Mm -hmm. And Superman 3 is all about that. But yeah, the cosmic risk, nobody is out to rule the world. The biggest inconvenience we see are people lining up at the pumps, which is just a reference to the energy crisis from like seven years earlier. So here, the stakes are really low. They are a greedy capitalist versus nothing in particular we never mm-hmm. find any, like he doesn't have any competition there really is nothing going on he just wants to control the coffee yeah mm-hmm. and then the oil and it's yeah. it's all pretty simple mm-hmm. um, and the idea that Superman's biggest battle is with himself mm-hmm. is externalized and made kind of silly because the junkyard fight is surprisingly inventive and also dumb at the same time because yeah. well it's Superman you you can put Clark Kent in a, in a car crusher but I'm pretty sure he's still invulnerable and you're just right. annoying each other mm-hmm. but the stakes feel real because of the performance and because of the weird intensity of that sequence mm-hmm. and um, I don't know if you follow Supergirl the new TV series no I don't actually comes closest to capturing this there yeah. there was an episode they, they've sort of leaned into the the Donnerverse, the the original Superman movie Mm -hmm. concepts, uh, a little more heavily than, say, Batman v Superman does. And there was an episode a couple of weeks ago where Kara was exposed to red kryptonite and did the whole thing. She ended up in a bar flicking peanuts at at the wall. (laughs) And it was staged in this great little sequence where I, I watched it with Kate, who clearly was not familiar with Superman 3, and when she picked up the peanuts, I just sort of leaned forward and went, no, and they did it, and it was just joyful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was still mean and cruel, but it was a connection to that that material that I thought we lost. And right. I've been saying this for a couple of weeks since Batman v Superman opened. If you want to see what Superman is supposed to be, why everybody is upset, if you don't understand why people are annoyed at Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, take a look at Supergirl. That is the idea of someone who is secretly um, magnificent living among humans, as opposed right. to the Zack Snyder vision of Superman, which is, you know, Clark Kent's not really that important. Superman is above us, mm-hmm. literally, figuratively, morally. We cannot judge him. We should just hope he's there when we need him. Right. And Lester, as you say, like he's there for you all the time, even mm-hmm. if you don't see him he's still thinking about you yeah and that's there's a grace there and a sort of a a a pleasant warm feeling of superman that has gotten lost along the way yeah and and that's what's threatened in this film when he starts to turn Mm -hmm. and i love that they phrase it as he's become he's become normal yeah he's not evil he's just normal yeah and these are the impulses that he's feeling i i guess because you know he's been so um inherently good for so long that 
once he becomes normal, he just has sex, gets drunk, flicks yeah. peanuts, and and Punches straightens the leaning tower of pizza. Yeah. But that is that is the most wonderful thing. And I know that it's just a joke for Lester, so he can set up the punchline at the end. Right. And there is a kind of a weird English laugh at the foreigner moment in that scene. Yeah. In both yeah. scenes. Uh, the untranslated, you know, whiny, complaining Italian uh, novelty salesman. But that feels... It feels like something that somebody would do um, if if given incredible power and you were just really cranky. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a weird sense that of all the things that Superman could screw up, like he's not carving his own face on Mount Rushmore, mm-hmm. he's not you know, writing his name on the concrete anywhere, he's not humiliating people, he's just screwing with a monument. Because, you know, that should be straight. Which still kind of speaks to his own sense of order in a really weird way. It's like the one thing he always wanted to do, but he couldn't correct it because that would be wrong. But is it really wrong if you're Superman? Yeah, they're always asking him to fix things, and and so he fixes the one thing that they don't want fixed. Um, And really, nobody seems terribly upset about it. There's still a tourism industry about it, as we see. Yeah. Um, maybe the you know the, the straightened little tower figurines could have maybe had a little Superman sticking out of one side just to, so they could commemorate yeah. the straightening. But I would think he would sell more. <laughs> right? He's not <laughs> hurting. He's helping. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that that sort of visual gag. It. I mean, I almost it just gets back to his sort of montagey, playful style from the Beatles films, and you can almost imagine. John Lennon walking up in a forced perspective and leaning on it yeah, and it yeah. going straight or it's uh, that same sort of tone but it's a the, look like yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a, a kind of a joyful prankish spirit yeah. as opposed yeah. to something genuinely cruel right and I mean getting back to the idea of him his responsibilities and you know he's when he's with uh, Lana and there there's that moment where he's on the couch and he's kind of making a pass at her and she's talking about the, the bridge and this idea that uh, and he's not fully turned yet but even as an audience member you're like oh that's yeah. creepy Superman and, is sitting uncomfortably close to Lana Lang like, right. you can feel that scene in the blocking of it it's, just, in, it's, it's just him sitting on the couch next to her in makes you judge him and think he's a, being a creep and it's like, it's, so Superman's not even allowed to sit next to a woman on a couch? Like, we, yeah. you know, we, he's got this responsibility, and he's this this figure, this icon, and even just him sitting next to someone on a couch breaks that in a way. And you, you start to think, like, okay, well, he's turning normal, he's got these urges, but eventually he comes back to being who he is, which means that he just isn't allowed to experience any of those things things in, in, in that way, I guess. And it's almost like, I, maybe it's just me, I f- feel almost a little bad for him. <laughs> like yeah. Now it's back to just taking care of the lemmings and making sure everybody's not walking off of cliffs. And yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, that, that, that sort of perspective on Superman for me is interesting. It's more interesting than the god that's indestructible. And Lester did, did it in part two as well with the fight in oh, Metropolis. Uh, oh, sorry, with, with the uh, with Zod and and the other guys, and and it, that fight is more about protecting the citizens than actually battling these people. So they re- they recognize his weakness, which is his love for these people and and wanting to protect them. So they're just trying to, you know, crush people with cars, and and all he does is sort of deflect all of those things, and that to me is it's like. 
I guess it's it's just there's a lot more opportunity for some fun action sequences when it's not just people punching each other and whoever has the the, the harder punch wins. Right. It's the strategy of being able to clean up all of these messes and keep everything contained and and in order and and making sure that nobody dies in this case let alone like if one person died in that fight in superman 2 you feel like superman would quit <laughs> yeah well i mean there's that scene earlier onward zod kills a child i mean right. it's off camera yeah but it's there mm-hmm. and it very quickly establishes that these guys are the bad guys they're yeah. worse than i mean they're somehow worse than luther who detonated two nuclear weapons at the end of the first superman and the and that's something else that i keep coming back to about the new <clears throat> superman is the mm-hmm. people don't care about the carnage about the surrounding disaster because that's what filmmakers think the audience wants from these movies mm-hmm. the same way every almost every marvel movie ends with a big thing falling out of the sky onto some stuff yeah. it's just that's the formula yeah so with the donner superman films and with the lester superman half film and film you you have a world where every decision is thought through and it's how yeah, if superman can kill you with a punch he can't punch you Mm-hmm. So it has to be something else. There yeah. has to be another way. And that's why the fight in Niagara Falls in Superman 2 lands so hard, because Christopher Reeve plays it. Like, he freaks out, which is so fantastic. It's the one thing that was really surprising in Man of Steel that they didn't echo in any way. There is a scene where Superman gets bloodied for the first time, and mm-hmm. presumably ever. Mm-hmm. And the idea that Reeves Clark is paralyzed by this sight of his own blood is... So human and alien at the same time mm-hmm. that it's it's just so magical in a really weird way, and it, it suddenly makes the character feel more real mm-hmm. because all of a sudden he's not the character of, of fear that Clark Kent will sometimes project. He's actually afraid. Yeah. And in three, he's gotten beyond that, so they have to find another challenge, which mm-hmm. is have him argue with himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still somehow turns it into like it's not a movie about all the oil in the world being threatened it's not a movie about computers taking over it's a movie about superman not being able to do what superman needs to do yeah it's a movie about the stakes of being superman Mm -hmm. which is something that i mean clearly that's no longer an issue that's not what people want to see yeah but i wanted to see it and i still care about that stuff because it makes the character who is absolutely unrelatable relatable Mm -hmm. yeah i mean I know. Again, I I don't know exactly what Superman fans want yeah, from Superman. I'm but I'm saying it's unfair to put this on you because <laughs> you're not as invested as I am. For for me, uh, I I just I guess. But if this is your Superman, then this is what you would want, right? This this is what I want, and I I again, it probably falls at least now. My, my reaction to it as a kid was just this is fun. It's it's colorful. It's inventive. It's weirdly dark at times as well uh tonally like the the junkyard fight i remember that sticking out as a kid as a kid i think i, I probably felt it went on a little long and it does go on a little long mm-hmm. but uh again after watching you know help and hard days night and, and lester's filmography and seeing how he you know he's a, a cinematic storyteller and and he's not a in many cases a literalist like he's using images to get across ideas and and it makes me watch that junkyard sequence and just think this is a, 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 a almost attempted suicide like it's yeah no he's choking it, himself like he is yeah and and the, the, the setting is the setting because it's interesting and fun to watch but it it's in it, it, I'm, I'm not sure i take it completely literally when he splits apart and fights himself 
and it's in that setting. It just feels like an a inventive way to kind of get a suicide scene into a blockbuster superhero movie. Right. And I guess that's how you do it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, beyond that, it, it's it's just uh, the way that he will set up these these set pieces and you know even the frozen lake thing i i i can't say for sure what comes from him and what comes from the writers but the way he presents these solutions are just way more satisfying and and fun than brute force or you know not to continually just bash the Zack snyder version of superman but this is a safe space (laughs) go right ahead but i will i will um you know, take that that sense of fun. I know a lot of, for some reason, a lot of people seem to be against the idea of injecting fun into something. I, the, as a result of the the Superman versus Batman thing, I guess they are doing reshoots on the Suicide, Suicide Squad. Squad. Yeah, they apparently they want to make it more comic. And then the response is like, why do we? Why would we want more fun in this? And my response is, why wouldn't you want more fun? I mean, there are just certain movies that I think are set out to do certain jobs and. Superman 3, the job that Richard Lester set out to, to accomplish, I think he accomplished extremely well. And it's just a matter of whether or not you feel that, I guess it's an appropriate way of telling a Superman story. Right. And seeing as I have no real investment in Superman, I'm more at this point invested in seeing a Richard Lester film. I think it's it's probably a minor Richard Lester film, but he still finds his way through the material and it, it still creates something that's weird it like it, it's it's entertaining but it's got these strange tonal shifts and it's it's got these uh these set pieces that are inventive and visually interesting to watch and um but still has those small moments in small town where you're you're grounded in certain ways with the characters i think richard pryor's character i like him He's a he's an interesting kind of uh, like I want him to succeed, mm-hmm. even though he's taking sort of the wrong path. But um, he's he's still kind of a, a interesting character for the lead of a superhero film, I yeah. guess. I mean, he is definitely not a villain, right? Even though he does things that are selfish and, and self-interested mm-hmm. I mean, he certainly the, the, the fact that what 15 years later they could make a joke about it in office space about channeling all the half right. sense and yeah. stealing that plot point yeah. uh, but it's there's a weird sort of naivete to everything mm-hmm. he does including mm-hmm. a villain plan to help him help the bad guy get all the oil mm-hmm. um, you know I think Robert Vaughn knows exactly what kind of tone he should be hitting yeah. uh, he's this sort of gleeful evil rapaciousness to mm-hmm. him to everything he does that's that weird little moment about how i can't have anyone with me who isn't with me but there's so much strange confidence in that line delivery which is basically nonsensical yeah. um that you don't mind and mm-hmm. then you can sort of see why why gus would want to hang out with this guy and mm-hmm. then gradually realize that he's doing all the work and getting no reward and then his arc is completely organic given that he barely exists as a character yeah um but it's the kind of like, he's basically <clears throat> a henchman Right. He's he's Alan Cumming in Goldeneye. He's the guy at the table who doesn't really factor into the story until he gets angry or gets killed. Mm-hmm. 
And focusing on him is a really interesting way into the world of Metropolis, where these guys presumably, like, they're supervillains and they're henchmen and their entire structures for that. And this is how that starts. This is how you get a job as a as a henchman. Right. And I can see how at the script stage that would be really interesting. I mean, I would love to pursue that mm-hmm. and follow it down that rabbit hole. And also, you have to make a Superman movie. So as a result, he kind of gets short shrift. But there's stuff going on that's... Yeah, clearly only someone who's really interested in characters and behavior would come up with this in the first place. Right. And, and uh, I mean, with him being naive, it, it is funny, this, the moment where he lays out the plans for the supercomputer kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, it, it was a stretch to think that this guy that we know nothing about, we, we meet him in an unemployment line, and then we realize, okay, he's a computer programming genius yeah. just for some reason. Yeah, even he doesn't know how. Right. But he is. And then suddenly we take the next step where he's now designed a supercomputer that will change the world. But on top of that, he's presenting it to uh, this this guy that is a essentially a, a supervillain in a weird way. But his he, when he presents it, he's like, ah, it'll do anything I, I want it to do, anything I ask it to do. And it's almost like he's thinking it'll, you know, fetch my beer or yeah. it will, like, print money or and he's presenting it with no idea that maybe it might be dangerous to put it in the hands of this yeah, yeah. you know this villain and then when he finds out they're using it to trap superman and kill him he's suddenly surprised like oh the supercomputer i designed might be used for evil mm-hmm. um which is kind of funny but ultimately all of the, the those logic leaps fall apart once i get to see the computer and and Superman interacting with it. Yeah. If, if that wasn't as fun to watch, then it would have been a failure. But I don't know. Within the context of this film, some of that stuff, I, as I said before, I'll let it slide so that I don't have to sit with an additional 20 minutes just to motivate how he knows how to program a computer. And it's sure. just not that film. Yeah, and it's the DNA of you know any mega franchise project right we, yeah. we don't need to we don't need to watch them build the, this month's stronghold in the bond movie we, right. it'll be there right. when we get there it's there uh and here yeah i mean the the computer stuff is is inc- i just I, I would love to know what it, how it plays to children now who have grown yeah. up with tablets and and who've never had to think about programming languages or anything like that and and if any of it is even important or if it's just that oh that computer takes over that lady and it's really disturbing Right. Like if that lands, you're right. Nothing else matters as long as we have something for Superman to fight against. I, I think it's broad enough. The strokes are broad enough that it's still, it's cartoony enough that it works, because they're not even really attempting to root it in a reality. So it's, it's not like watching, um, the net, right? <laughs> Where you know we're seeing her order a pizza online and. And it's like that. That was revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> 1995. We the, the, to, but we, yeah, we have to ooh and ah at all the things that are possible. Right. I mean, now, even now, if you tried that storyline, it would have to turn into Brainiac. It would have mm-hmm. to be a precursor to another super character that we know from the existing lexicon. So we yeah. can think, oh, it's part of a master plan. Nope, it's just a computer. Goes yeah. crazy. Bad things happen. And, and we would learn way more than we need to learn about how it works. And sure. The phrase uh, neural net would be thrown around. Yeah. Like all yeah. the stuff they used in Terminator, because now we know what that sounds like. Right. We know what to expect. Yeah. But when you're breaking the ground of having an incidental menace in a Superman movie that isn't going to make it past this film, mm-hmm. it's you can be less concerned and, and it can still land. It can still work in the moment because, yeah, we care about it because Superman is being hurt by it. That's all right. that really matters. Yeah. 
and then just getting to see how he resolves that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, I mean, it, it's just on that simple lever, level, extremely entertaining. And then if, if you want to, you know, dig beyond that, I do find it interesting still that when Superman becomes evil and they word it as him becoming normal, that it, it kind of suggests um, that his good nature is, is like in, 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 is contrary to the way people are, yeah. you know, like, like his greatest superpower is his sense of morality. Right. And you remove that and he's just another asshole, I yeah. guess. Um, and it does, you know, it doesn't really linger on that, but it's kind of there. Yeah. And we do sort of see it in Superman too, as well, where he goes yeah. back to beat up the bully. Right. As right. Superman or as a super powered Clark Kent. Yeah. And it's just like, I get it. It's for the kids in the audience who really wish they could stand up to a bully, and mm-hmm. it's a power fantasy. But at the same time, it's like, boy, Superman wouldn't do that. Yeah. Like, he really would not do that. He'd yeah. find another way to humiliate the guy. Right. But that's really, that's not who you are. And then mm-hmm. you see this, and it's like, oh, it is, though. Like, yeah. it's That's there. Yeah. The seed was planted. Yeah, and uh, I mean, to that, the, the uh, I guess, disconnect of Superman 3 from 1 and 2... I kind of like as well, just that they, it, it doesn't seem as huge as yeah. those two movies, and it feels like its own thing. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be cosmic. It's no longer indebted or beholden to the Kryptonian stuff. Right. Neither and, Jor-El nor Lara is there. He's just yeah. moved on with his life. And I think that kind of allows a bit of that tonal difference from those other two films. I, I, I guess if it just carried on uh, in the along that story thread and and suddenly all of this comedic stuff was injected in, it would stand. It would be a little tougher to swallow, but because it feels like a separate entry, it, mm-hmm. it, it almost has its own logic and doesn't really, you know, there's the kind of awkward uh, dealing of Lois Lane, which I guess was some contract dispute yeah, with Margot Kidder. but wanted to do it at all. Right, and um, which, I, I, from what I understand, came from uh, Lester coming on and Donner being kicked off, and there was this uh, allegiance to Donner oh, sure. and, and some tensions. But the way they handle that is quite obvious that, you know, we'll send Lois on vacation and she'll be out of the picture. But, you know, beyond that and the casting of Pryor as some weird cash grab, I think it's it's a solid film. Like, it, it just... It, it's especially after watching a, a bunch of films in his filmography and ending on that one and thinking, well, for someone who started in this very unique, um, almost avant-garde realm, yeah. and then to be pulled into Hollywood, it could have been worse. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I, I love Juggernaut, I, and the, I like the Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers, and, and I think Superman 3, I actually prefer... Superman 3 to 2. It's my favorite film, but I can see why people like 1 and 2 more, but as just a pure Richard Lester experience, it's right. it's very interesting. And I, I when they did the Donner cut of 2, I found all the stuff that was my were my favorite moments were lifted out from the Donner cut and it was like, oh, those are a lot of the Lester moments. Um, yeah, I mean, I can appreciate the Donner cut, but you can also Unfortunately, it's impossible to watch it now without undoing the first Superman as well, because mm-hmm. of the ending thing and the way they were right. re- 
the way they had to readjust everything yeah. because of the plan of shooting the two films together, or mm-hmm. almost together. I prefer the Lester cut. I mean, it's probably because it's the one I saw when I was 12 and when I needed it to be Superman. Yeah. But I'm still, it's happier and it's less severe. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of okay with that. I don't actually yeah. mind an upbeat Superman, especially now. I feel like I've been proven right yeah. that the uh, the way forward is literally up for Superman. He flies. You're supposed yeah. to have fun with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, just the idea of going back into two and, and hiring actors to try to replicate voices and doing some half-baked CG work to try to fill in these holes. And yeah. I mean, for that me, stuff it, dates it more than anything from 1981. Yeah, it, it's, it, it fulfills a curiosity, but as a film, it's non-existent for me. It's just a, it's a, a special edition Blu-ray, and that's it. Right. But um, I, I was just you know, surprised when I watched that, and all of the stuff that I kind of remembered from Superman 2 was gone. And... I guess it's just, you know, when you listen to Richard Donner's commentary and he has some oddly disparaging words for Lester and, of course, because he was replaced, but it makes you realize that I I guess Superman 3 must have had a, played a big role in Richard Lester's career just dropping off. I mean... Yeah, it probably did more to... I mean, he was also getting older, but... Right, I I had read, I think for the... uh, I haven't actually seen it, but is it the the Musketeers Return? He did an, another Musketeers oh, movie in the eighties. Musketeers in eighty nine, yeah. And I think someone there was an accident, and someone fell off of a horse or something and died, and that apparently had a big effect on him stopping as well. But his cachet was, I think, kind of gone after Superman three, yeah. which is unfortunate because this is a guy who made these films that had this influence that nobody. Not many people seem to acknowledge, and um, I I think a lot of people don't even realize that the guy who directed Superman 3 directed A Hard Day's Night. And once you realize that, then 3 makes sense. Um, But, I don't know, I'm not going to just go on a lifelong goal to... (laughs) You know, you're evangelizing it. Right, right. I mean, there are worse things to do than force people to watch A Hard Day's Night. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I also, you know... It's not like I'm saying Superman three is uh, on this on par with a hard day's night. Sure, and he it's it's a, a different kind of film, but contextually, I just like what he brought to it, yeah. and and it's it'd be great if um, you know it was uh, I, I guess especially now with superhero films being so popular, it was a part of the conversation a little more, and not just set aside as this is not the type of film we could do ever again. Right. Like we, I guess Guardians of the Galaxy and Ant-Man are the closest. Yeah, that Deadpool, although it's much more of a hard R kind of thing. Yeah. The sense of fun and play. Yeah. And the sense that the audience is familiar enough with the tropes that you can tweak them. Yeah. Certainly, I'm ready for that every time. Yeah. It just never happens. Yeah. Um, and then the, which brings us to the, the final question of the of the show, which is, what of it have you borrowed or lifted or stolen or absorbed into your DNA? How has Superman 3 stayed with you in your work? Um, well, I, recently, I, I can point literally to a moment, and I'm, I'm shooting a short documentary right now um, about a tornado that hit a local drive-in where I live. Uh, during Twister, while Twister was playing, okay, and it it didn't actually happen. It's an urban legend, but there's a lot of confusion as to what exactly happened that night. 
and we filmed some uh, recreations of the night of the storm. And I, I specifically wanted my Superman three Richard Lesser moment where someone walks outside of the concession stand into a windstorm holding popcorn and the popcorn flies everywhere and they try to walk against the wind. Right. That's my Richard Lester nod, I guess. Um, but I mean, other than that, I, I just, his sensibilities, cutting wise even, although I haven't really incorporated any of that into my work. Mm-hmm. Just well, how to build a time machine is much more sort of self-consciously Kubrickian in its cutting and its Steadicam and even its font. Yeah, but, it's, it, but there's a sense of there's a weird sense of melancholy that comes through here and there, and that mm-hmm. sort of I kind of felt that in the Smallville scenes watching Superman three this time, just thinking about how that might have bounced around in your head. Well, there's definitely nostalgia in in both films and uh, reconnecting to the past and. But, you know, if I were to think, and I, in no way am I saying this actually influenced anything, but going back to the idea of just visuals that are somehow satisfying to watch in How to Build a Time Machine, a, a chunk of the movie is a guy literally building a time machine. Mm-hmm. Prop. The time machine. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just watching him mix uh, the um, silicone and pour it into a mold and and trim the edges of the mold and that that sort of stuff i enjoy watching we'll see if other people do right. but you you get mesmerized by that and so choosing these visuals that have some sort of weird psychological connection where you're not sure why you like watching this but you could watch it forever right. there's a moment where he's picking a stencil off of his dish and i feel like i could watch him just pick little pieces of that stencil off forever and Superman 3 taps into that where, you know, when he uh, brings puts all of the oil back into the tanker and is folding it up and yeah. welding the seams, there's something satisfying about watching him do that. And choosing those types of uh, scenarios and visualizing them in that way, I, I think just heightens the film cinematically. It, it's not just you know simply people punching and flying and kicking and explosions. There's a playfulness to the the, the scenarios, and there's a satisfaction to watching him. Um, I, I guess it comes back to I think David Mamet said something about this: the idea of watching people who are really good at their jobs doing their jobs well. Right. And there's I love that. So in my film, I'm watching a craftsman making a time machine and it's satisfying because he's a perfectionist and he's really good at what he does and with superman it's the same thing he's really good at saving people and i enjoy watching him do it and you almost feel like well he it must get boring to just fly up and grab people off of a roof so why not use this pipe as a slide yeah. <laughs> like it's like his his creative flourishes as he's saving people yeah. I, I think that's kind of fun and maybe it kind of bleeds over into Time Machine, not directly, but that's kind of a connection, I guess. Well, I mean, certainly they're both... I mean, with Superman, there's definitely more of an assurance that when this this mission is done, when this thing is done, this job of work, Mm -hmm. everything is going to be okay. Yeah. And with Time Machine, that's sort of the goal. Right. Once I'm finished, I'll be whole. Yeah, yeah. And the question is if you're ever going to be finished. Right, I suppose. Yeah, I... I guess now that Superman is off of having sex and getting drunk and flicking peanuts 
and back to saving people, he will never be finished yeah. <laughs> with that job. So. It's a long road. Yeah, yeah. My thanks to Jay Cheel, whose new movie, How to Build a Time Machine, premieres in Toronto at the Hot Docs Festival on Monday, May 2nd, and screens again on Tuesday, May 3rd, and Saturday, May 7th. Check facebook.com slash timemachinedoc, all one word, to see if tickets are still available for any of those screenings. You can also find Jay's earlier documentary, Beauty Day, on iTunes, and, of course, you can catch him on the regular on his Film Junk podcast. You can find Jay on Twitter at jaycheel, all one word, and you can find Superman 3 on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. And if you want to leave a review on iTunes, this week's call sign is The Philly Flash. Thanks for listening.